We've entered into this season that our culture acknowledges as Easter. Um, the word Easter only appears in the New or the King James Version, Acts 12, verse 4. Um, it's a time where traditionally, though not biblically, once a year, the resurrection of Christ is honored. And uh, even though that may not be part of biblical teaching as far as honor once a year, the resurrection of Christ, we honor Christ's death every first day of the week as Christ instructed, it's still something where we can seize the moment of our culture and we can, uh, at least for a moment of time, make sure we understand the exact nature of the resurrection of Christ and its importance because we're acknowledging it all the time and most importantly, how we live our lives in light of the resurrection. So in this morning's lesson and in next week's lesson, we're going to focus on the resurrection of Christ. But this morning, I want to look from the angle of faith founded upon fact, the historical evidence supporting the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, the lesson will not go as long as your notes look like it will. Uh, give you a lot of extra notes. You got that, didn't you, Austin? Um, give you a lot of extra to look at at home. We're going to go through a lot of things pretty quickly, but a lot of it's reference material. But many people think the resurrection, like many things in the Bible, is simply a, a story in the fictional sense of the word. It's the, one of the nicest things about Christianity. Uh, and they simply see it is something that just is an imaginary event, a nice story that is Christ rose from the dead. And then there's an immediate run to Easter bunnies and candy and things like that, where it's just kind of like Christmas has become just a nice thing that the world says, okay, Christians, you can do that. We have no problem with that. And many Christians kind of go along with that, that the resurrection is simply one of the nicest stories of the Bible, but it's not true, but it's just real nice. And when that mentality comes into the mind of Christians, our life as a body of people will be very short because this is the foundational truth of our faith and we need to see the, the factual nature of the resurrection of Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at the historical evidence supporting the resurrection of Jesus. I think to kind of lay the groundwork for understanding the factual nature of the resurrection, we need to understand fictional story, myth, and legend. And probably the best example of that in our culture is simply the Star Wars series of movies that will never end because it's a really good fictional story. It's one of the best that almost everyone in our culture understands. I remember, I believe it was in 1977, going into the Uptown Theater in Napa, California, and hearing about Star Wars, and it was unlike any movie you'd ever seen before, and it started unlike any other movie. Remember that crawl line in the black and yellow, and the words just kind of went in an ascending form? But the words that started out the entire movie were these. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Here the writer of this excellent fictional series of stories is telling us right off the bat, this is not real. It's not real. It's just a really good story by telling us this happened a long, long time ago. You don't need to know when because it, it's not set in time. And in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, it's nothing real is what the author is saying, but then goes in to talk about things as if they are real so we can connect to them. 
That's what myth, legend, and fiction does. That is, things that are not true. They don't need a time reference. They don't need real people. They don't need real places. Uh, the Avatar movie that is out now, there's nothing rooted in reality, but it's really entertaining to watch those two movies. But I want to see the big contrast between things that are clearly or openly fictional, not true, and the things that are true as presented in the Bible. Here's this great contrast that we'll see. First of all, we'll see that Jesus' resurrection is recorded in factual accounts. Let's first read the account of the resurrection of Christ in Matthew 28. This is one of four accounts in the New Testament. There's one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four recording the resurrection of Jesus, but providing different details because the resurrection is looked at from different angles. Just like eyewitnesses to an accident or something good that happens, we'll all see things differently, but they'll all be talking about the same thing. We're going to talk about Matthew's viewpoint and then look at how it's recorded in a factual account, an historical account. But let's see what we're first talking about. Matthew 28, verse 1, this is the resurrection. I'll read through verse 15. Matthew records, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, he is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. <clears throat> they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will See me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling him, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. We'll just stop here. So this is Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. 
the central verse being verse 6, where the angel simply says, He is risen. Then later on, the women and other disciples, and then 500 eventually, will see him in person. They will see him in his resurrected form. This is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. That not only Christ died for our sins, but he rose from the dead, showing that someone could break the bonds of death and live again, which is our hope today. Our hope is that even though we will die, unless the Lord comes back first, we eventually will be risen from the dead, take on a brand new body in its best form, and live forever with God in heaven. The only way we know that's possible is seeing that Jesus paved the way through his own resurrection. But how do we know this is true? How do we know this is not just a Star Wars story that never really happened, but people just wanted it to happen? First of all, it's recorded in factual accounts. Look over in Luke's account. Luke chapter 3. I want to look at Luke 3 and then back up to chapter 1. This account of Luke is very representative of the historical material that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't find anything such as a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You instead find this. Look how Luke records the beginning of Jesus' ministry as it was connected to John the Baptist. Notice how Luke roots what he's saying in history. Verse 1 Chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet. We'll just pause here. Notice here that Luke is telling us exactly when and where his events happened. He tells us the Caesar that's in charge of Rome, Tiberius Caesar. And then he goes through a list of other smaller, lower level governors of that time, and then gives us a reference point of the Jewish high priest at that time. He's telling us exactly who was in charge at the time, exactly what the time period is. Every single one of these individuals in Luke 3, 1 through 3, has been shown as a true historical figure, even outside of the Bible, because they found either archaeological evidence or other historical writings that confirm every one of these people were real, and in no way is this some kind of fictional story about people that no one's ever heard of uh, that just have a nameless identity. It's just the opposite. Look how Luke begins his gospel. Look at chapter 1 now. Again, we're looking at historical documents when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not just some wild story that someone made up over time. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know what? The certainty of the things you have been taught. Let me just read that last verse again. <clears throat> so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What Luke is telling Theophilus here, a person to whom this was written, or all the people that were to read this eventually. He's saying, I'm writing this so you might know this truly happened. Because they initially just heard about all the events connected to Jesus, especially the resurrection. But now they're getting an orderly account, he says. This is what historical documents look like. They present themselves with real people, real places, time frame references. And someone will say, basically, I'm writing this so that you might know this really happened. This is what we have in the Bible. We have these historical accounts, and I put these other verses here simply so that you can look at all four Gospels and find representative scriptures that show that they're referencing historical people and places. When you ever meet people that are telling a lie, and they're really good liars about what they did or something that happened, the last thing they do is give you exact dates, other people you could talk to, <laughs> or any time reference. They'll keep it as vague as possible to convince you of something that really didn't happen because they don't want you checking it out. Luke is doing the opposite. He's saying, go check it out. Look at all the people that were alive at this point. Look at who was the leader of Rome. This happened at this point in time. This is what you have with the Bible in the account of the life of Christ. Let's look at some thoughts more specifically. Um, People have put the gospel accounts to test. Go ahead to the next one, uh, Nathaniel. The gospel accounts have passed all standard tests of historical trustworthiness. Gospel accounts pass all standard tests of historical trustworthiness. All historical documents, whether they apply to Abraham Lincoln, the Caesars, any people of history, Napoleon, because those things happened a long time ago, historians have to look at, well, what do different accounts show? And there's three tests to show that, hey, these are reliable historical accounts. One called the bibliographical test. That is, are there enough physical writings where we can really ascertain this person lived or this event happened? They have to have enough stuff to look at. And that's the biblical graphical test. The Bible has thousands of different documents to look at. It passes that test. The external test, that is, did people write about these events or these people outside of that one document that relates it in detail? Otherwise, is the story or the account corroborated? That is what happened. <clears throat> A lot of times when I'm watching the news, even though one news station, CBS, is reporting something, you know what I do? I go to see what NBC is reporting. What is KTVU reporting? Or what is Fox News, and then I'll go to CNN. I want to see the same thing reported by different news sources. And then I will make up the judgment what really happened. They do that with historical documents, too. They see, are there outside sources that talk about these people? And sure enough, there are that talk about not only the resurrection, 
But they talk about the different Caesars, the different people that line up at this time, and it's absolutely factual as far as the people Luke referenced. People have different concepts about whether or not Jesus was resurrected or not, but they do record it was believed at the time that he was, and this is not something made up. There's an internal test. Uh, are there eyewitnesses to the event? Um, do the eyewitnesses agree with each other? So before any historical document is determined to be trustworthy, it has to be subjected to these tests. And any account that's determined to be simply a fable or simply a made-up account gets dismissed and simply dies out in history. The Bible continues to be the best-selling book of all time. There is no second. It has passed this, passed this test of time. The gospel accounts do not show evidence of myth or legend. You don't find this vagueness about, well, Jesus lived in this grand area a long, long time ago. Instead, you find it was during Tiberius Caesar, during the reign of Herod. Uh, you find continual references to real people, real places. There's no gross exaggeration like a Paul Bunyan story where someone is 20 stories high and things like that. Things that you find in, in fictional stories where things or features of people are greatly exaggerated because it's simply a story to be wowed by. Like Avatar. Uh, no one believes that's real, but it's real interesting. But no one believes it's real. Where in the Bible you have things that are real that are attested by historical documents. And the Bible has withstood the test of time. No one's ever discredited the Bible. No one's ever shown it not to be true. They may not like it and they get angered by it. They don't want to touch it because it'll rearrange your life if you come to terms with what it's telling you. But no one's ever discredited it. They've just railed against it because they don't like it. The accounts of Jesus' resurrection stand true. Here's what one uh, professor said about the the validity of these accounts. His name is Dr. H. Clark Pittock. University professor, wrote a great book simply entitled Set Forth Your Case. And here's what he writes on page 58 about how solid Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are as they record the resurrection and all the events of Jesus' life. He says, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data <clears throat> on which an intelligent decision can be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on an irrational or anti-supernatural bias. He's simply saying you cannot dismiss this. You can argue with it, you can challenge it, but you can't dismiss it. So if anyone tells you, oh, the Bible is full of fable and myth, the story is just fable and myth, ask them which one? Ask them, well, what's the evidence of fable and myth that you see? With all due respect, they'll probably, well, because well, 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 they just heard that. And God bless people that kind of respond that way. They've just heard things about the Bible. But they've not really talked to any English professors about what is historical writing versus what is fictional writing. They've not sought out historical references and historians. They've just kind of 
picked up things because the Bible makes them uncomfortable. But just ask them, what, what are the evidence of myth and fable? Or what makes you think these are made up? And then feel free to share anything uh, from this lesson. This is just a short picture of what the evidence looks like. The second area I want to briefly talk about today concerning the validity of the resurrection, that is Christ returning to life three days later to never die again, is that the resurrection is established by credible evidence. That is what you do find in the Bible. Once you've ascertained that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical documents, what you find in them is credible. First of all, because Jesus' resurrection was uh, seen by eyewitnesses. And that testimony is in the gospel accounts and in other places. It's affirmed by university scholars who've looked at this and also attested to even by non-believers. They have to acknowledge that yes, this event happened. We don't know how to explain it, but the historical evidence is too vast to overlook. Let's look at these a little closer. <clears throat> First of all, look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. I'm just going to put this up on the screen here. It's in your uh, notes. But it's not just one person that says, I saw Jesus resurrected. What you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also in the book of Acts, the historical beginnings of Christianity, you find these references to people that saw Jesus resurrected. First of all, Mary Magdalene, John 20. You find a group of women in Matthew 28, 1 through 6. He appeared to Peter, Luke 24. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. Uh, the entire group of ten apostles, Thomas was not there, and of course Judas had taken his own life, John 20. Then all the eleven apostles together, John 20, in the second reference. Uh, to several disciples at the Sea of Galilee, John 21. Then in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul cites that not only had Jesus appeared to the apostles, but to about 500 brethren at once. He says, most of whom are still alive, implying you can go talk to them. If they didn't really see it, they'll tell you. He says, 500 at once. To James, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, to the apostles at Jerusalem immediately before the ascension, Acts 1. To Saul of Tarsus himself, Acts 22. These are multiple witnesses. <clears throat> Usually on the news, they'll just find one person that says, yeah, I saw, I saw the car crash. Oh, they might find two. But Scripture points to multiple people who at different times and in different places saw Jesus in his erected resident form, and even 500 at once that Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, you can go talk to, they're still alive. That is the basis of credibility. I don't want to really hear from one person who was in a religious trance by themselves underground saying, I saw this happen. I want to hear from a lot of people in a lot of places at different time slots. That's how you establish credibility. Whenever there's an incident that happens at school, whenever there's a fight, I always talk about fights at school, but they do this all the time with fights. Usually administration never sees the fight. They just bring the bodies, the security people at school will bring the bodies, I mean the kids that got the, the scuffle, they'll bring them up to the office, and the first thing they do is they make each student give a statement. 
and anyone that they can find that was really close to give a statement. Because the first thing administration wants to do, because they know they're going to have to talk to parents, and they know they're going to have to maybe suspend someone, they want to ascertain the truth of what happened. So they don't just take one kid's word for it. Yeah, he threw the punch first. They will get multiple witness statements. Sometimes they'll ask me as a teacher, if it happened outside my classroom, what did you see, Mr. Mulligan? Things like that. And I've got to write it all down. And then they blend them all together. But you've got to have multiple people. Don't just take one person's word for it. You can smile and nod if it doesn't sound right. I do that a lot. <laughs> but I want to talk to other people. And then I'll say, okay, yeah, that unusual thing probably happened. Yeah. This is what you have in the Bible. Multiple people. Different places, different times. Saw Jesus after his resurrection. Also, you have this testimony of eyewitnesses to this. Look at Luke 1 again. You're already there. It's the last test we looked at. Look what Luke tells us about what he's citing regarding the life of Jesus, which includes the resurrection. Verse 1 again, Luke 1. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. One of the most credible sources of ascertaining truth is, did someone actually see it? Did someone of credibility see it? What Luke is saying here is, I'm referencing eyewitnesses who said they saw this. And not just one eyewitness that says he or she saw something, but multiple eyewitnesses. And he's putting together an orderly account, he says, again, that someone might know the certainty. So these eyewitnesses have to be credible. <clears throat> well, we saw the list of all the people that had seen Jesus after his resurrection. But they are unlikely eyewitnesses if this was something that was just made up. First of all, and Jay brought this out, or Michael did, I forget which, in a previous lesson, the fact that the gospel writers highlighted how that different women had seen Jesus resurrected, which is honoring of women, giving them status and credibility that really was not given in the first century. But they make it a point to, hey, show them that, hey, different women saw, and it was Mary first who saw Jesus resurrected. If you're trying to make up a lie, you want to cite the people that everyone recognizes right away. The gospel writers do the opposite. They cite people that you wouldn't cite if you're trying to lie. The gospel writers highlight that different women in different groups or individually saw Jesus, which would make a serious investigator of truth saying, well, if they lied, why do they cite people that normally are not cited? That gives credibility that, hey, something unusual is here. Uh, the fact also that the disciples were very fearful. The disciples in the gospel accounts weren't looking for a resurrected Jesus. They were hiding underground, basically. Fearful for their lives. They were not all standing around in the street corner saying, let us tell you about the resurrection. Jesus had to come to them 
to prove himself to them. And to Thomas, Thomas had to touch the side of the wrist, the side where the spear went through, because he wasn't going to believe. When you have eyewitnesses that are not too eager to report what they saw, you have credibility. When you have people that aren't too eager to tell their story, you have credibility. Because when people are too eager to tell you something, there's a good chance they might be making stuff up. Also, many eyewitnesses were eventually imprisoned, tortured, or killed. James, one of the apostles, was killed. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. All of the apostles were beaten for publicly declaring Jesus was resurrected. If there's one thing liars won't do, it's suffer for five minutes for their lie. Liars don't do that. They're not going to take any grief for their lie. They're just going to tell another lie to get out. Like <laughs> yeah, you, you don't suffer. You don't, you don't put up with hurting yourself because you told something that was not true. But the apostles were willing to go to their death because of the truth that they experienced with Jesus in his resurrection. No one suffers that long for a lie, which gives credibility. Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 15, again, 500 at once saw Jesus. So there's all kinds of internal evidence in the Gospels that this event of the resurrection really happened. Also, you have the testimony of scholars. <clears throat> Dr. Thomas Arnold, who wrote one of the most recognized historical works of all time, that is the history of Rome, three volumes. He says this about the resurrection of Jesus. He writes, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Even though you don't need scholars to support something really happening, eyewitness testimony among multiple eyewitnesses is sufficient in court. But what happens in court? They will bring on expert testimony, uh, people that will examine someone's mental state or things like that. It always helps. It always adds to the credibility, especially with people that need to see that. My brother-in-law is a psychologist. He testifies in court cases all the time because they want an expert to testify about whether or not someone was mentally uh, capable of committing that crime or mentally not responsible. So they want outside credibility. We have that with the gospel accounts. Scholars testify that, hey, this, this account surely happened. We don't know exactly how it happened, but clearly it's recorded in documents that are credible and in documents outside of the Bible. Uh, here's... Testimony from a non-believer. Gala Kornfeld, Jewish scholar, wrote a book in 1982 entitled The Historical Jesus, A Scholarly View of the Man of His World. Notice what he says about the resurrection and whether or not this was considered to be true at the time it happened or whether or not it was considered to be a story. He writes, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty 
on the morning of the first Easter. Let me just read that again. He says, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. <clears throat> what this Jewish scholar is saying, he's not a believer, but he's simply saying the historical evidence is strong to simply support there was an empty tomb. Now what explains it, that's subject to debate. But even Matthew said, hey, the guards were paid off to say the disciples. Early on, stories were being invented to try to explain away why the tomb was empty. But no one debated whether or not it was empty. It had been sealed by the Romans and the Jewish guard. And three days later, there was no body in there. There has to be an explanation. And what Kornfeld is simply saying here, is we know the tomb was empty based on the way we judge history. What explains it is up to debate. But you cannot debate the tomb was empty. I want to end with these two thoughts. First of all, I know this is a lot of stuff just to hit you with, but that's kind of the idea. When something's fake, you're told right away. The galaxy far, far away in a time long ago. But when something's true, you get bombarded with evidence. And that's what happens in court. I've been on a jury three times. You get bombarded with evidence when you're looking at something that's factual. But here's what this means to us practical, pra practically, I should say. First of all, your faith is founded on fact and not fiction. If we're just following made-up stories, we need to close the doors right now. We have other things to do. It's a very sad life with no hope, but we better live it up because when we die, there's nothing if these things are just made-up stories. But they're not. It's a truth that's recorded in a historical document that we believe. It's a factual event that is the resurrection of Christ. So even though next week is going to be surrounded with bunnies and candy and carnival and, and all kinds of just fun things which are perfectly fine. Understand that your faith, though, is rooted in fact. When someone challenges your faith and tries to tell you, just, you're just following stories. I'm just full of stories. Well, ask, well, how do you know it's a story? What, what determines a fictional account and what determines a factual account? What English professors or historical professors have you talked to to conclude this? And most people, again, have not really looked. But you know that your faith is rooted in fact. And the truth of the resurrection will support your most challenging moments. We are all aging. And all of us are facing an appointment we cannot cancel. That is our death. And the statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one person dies. We are all headed towards the grave. But for us as believers, because of the resurrection of Jesus, death does not become our greatest fear. Because death becomes simply the entryway into eternity. And death is awful. We don't want to think about how we will die. 
that we as believers know that because Jesus broke the bonds of death and through his power was raised to live and now it's at the right hand of the Father. The ability to live after we die is possible. He proved it. But he also provided the way for you and I to know that we will experience the same. Christianity provides the only hope of mankind. There is no medical pill. There is no procedure that can break what's happening with our bodies right now. No solution from Amazon, from Facebook, from any tech company. We will all die probably in our 70s or 80s. We're granted to live into 90, 100, that's great, I think. But we know that we will go into the arms of Jesus upon our death. And ultimately, we'll stand before God in judgment because of what Jesus did for us. We will be pronounced not guilty. We'll be allowed to enter our heavenly home simply on the basis of what Jesus did for us. Be given a brand new body to live forever with God. The best is yet to come. This is what Jesus did for us. This is why this matters. It's important that you believe this is true. Otherwise, you and I are wasting our time here this morning. If you don't believe this really happened, you're wasting your time. So embrace the historical evidence of Jesus. There is much to look at if you want to study this further. And I'd be glad to point you to different areas. This is about 40 minutes worth. You can spend the rest of your life looking at it. But you won't need much more time to ascertain the truth. We're going to sing a song now to encourage us to live according to what we know is true. That's our challenge. I think everyone here believes this really happened, but it needs to change our lives too. We need to live as people who have been brought from death to life. And we're going to sing the song to encourage us to continue to challenge our own existence, to live for God, to live on purpose for Him, and for the one, His Son, who died for us. There is no better way to live if you need to change your life this morning, make a decision of obedience or to go forward in some way, where you know these events happen, but your life needs to catch up with what you know is true. Make whatever change you need to be, uh, that you need to make, and your brothers and sisters will help you today.